0: You open your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. We're in the final week of Jesus' earthly life. Remember last time he had come into Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. Mark chapter 13. Read the first part first part of verse one. Mark thirteen, verse one. And he was going out of the temple. Stop there. Mark thirteen, the the content is he is he is leaving the temple. If you turn back to Mark eleven twenty seven, where we left off. You remember the triumphal entry, he drove out the money changers from the temple. And then verse twenty seven. Eleven twenty-seven, and they came again to Jerusalem so beginning in mark chapter 11 verse 27 it's the following day and he is he has come back to Jerusalem so after he cleansed the temple they went back to Bethany uh, and in chapter 11 verse 27 he came back to Jerusalem and it says verse 27 as he was walking in the temple so this is the following day yeah, I believe this would be Wednesday so we're going to we're going to to the end of the book of Mark, we're going to go by by the days and not by the text. So this is way And he comes back to the temple and there are four different confrontations that, that take place there. And, and Mark records them in rapid fire succession. It's almost as if this was their last ditch effort to get Jesus. Uh, look with me at 1127. He came to Jerusalem as he's walking the temple. The first confrontation was with Verse 27 says, The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And they came to him and began saying to them, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? So these these chief priests and teachers of the law, these elders, they started questioning his authority. Who gave you this authority? And Jesus uh, responded by saying, I ask you one question. You answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. <laughs> and Mark tells us. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they, they, were, they, would, they were afraid of the multitude, for all considered John to have been a prophet. And so answering Jesus, they said, We don't, we don't know. And Jesus, I love this. you got to get the humor in this. Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you. They would have thought i do these things. So when they said, I don't know, in essence what they're saying is, we're not going to tell you. And so Jesus says, well, fair enough. I won't tell you. Chapter twelve, and, and in fact, he he gives this parable of these of, of the vine growers that that this, this uh, owner of a vineyard leased out his land to these tenant farmers, and uh, uh, and he sends his uh, his servants to check on progress, and every time they send a the, this this owner of this land would send a, a, a servant, they the, the these tenant farmers would kill him, would would kill them. Finally, they sent his, he finally he sent his son saying, Well, they'll listen, surely they'll listen to him. And when the son arrived, this is the, the parable that Jesus is when telling. When the son arrived, they say, Hey, this is the son. We're really going to be in trouble because we've been slacking. And they kill his son. And Jesus says in verse 9 What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected then became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. And look at verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him yet they feared the multitude for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. They were the tenant farmers. They were the ones who repeatedly as we'll see in Matthew repeatedly killed the prophets and those who were sent to them. In fact, when God finally sent his son they killed his son. And when you look at the look at the parable, it says, uh, what will he do to the, the what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. Destruction. Judgment. So you understand this is the context. Judgment. And so they left him and went away. The second confrontation, it beginning in verse thirteen, is now so those are the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now in verse thirteen, we see they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him. So now they They sent in the second teamers, the second wave. And what did they do? They tried to get him sideways with Rome again. They were constantly trying to get him in trouble with Rome because it worked really well with John the Baptist. And so they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial in any way, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay poll tax to Caesar or not? Corey, could you turn me down just a tad, please? Yeah, that's better. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? So, you know, should should we pay taxes to Caesar? So they're trying to get him in in, in trouble with, with Rome. And we have the classic response when he says, Why are you testing me? bring me a denarius to look at it. And they brought one. He said to him, whose likeness in in scripture is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And she said to him, well, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed. And that didn't work. So wave number three is in verse 18. And some Sadducees in Mark, again, in editorial or parenthetical, because he's writing primarily to Gentiles, So the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, they came to him and they began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves his child, and leaves no child, his brother should take the wife and raise up offering. This is the uh, redeemer, right? Kinsman redeemer. Well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no offspring, and the second one took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. The third likewise, and so all seven left no offspring. I mean, there's just this, they come up with the most ridiculous scenario. Like this ever happens. But they weren't really asking for information. They were asking to trap him. See, so they were trying to trap him theologically, and Jesus responded to them. Oh, oh, by the way, they said, in the resurrection, if, if, in, in the resurrection, you know, they, they don't believe in the resurrection, so this is real snide. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said, I love this, is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? That didn't work. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he'd answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Now, this this guy seems to be a little more sincere. And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. If you take that, by the way, if you take that love for God, that encompasses the first five of the Ten Commandments. And love your neighbor is the second five. love love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, embodies the entire Ten Commandments. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all, all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And here's how it ended. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. No kidding. Being in verse 35, Mark records Jesus' teaching in, in the temple courts, in the, the temple complex. And, and, and Matthew, in fact, uh, records, and if you look at, we're going to look in, in here a little bit, in Matthew chapter 23, all the, the seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So Mark doesn't record all that Jesus taught in the temple. And that's when we come to chapter thirteen. And he, after all this was going on, after all this had happened, he was starting to leave the temple. This would be the last time he, he ever was in the temple. One of his disciples said to him, "Teacher, behind, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings." If you, if you read uh, Josephus and some of the historians, they they said the temple was a, a wonder of the world. It, it, it was made of white marble and, and gold and. They said, you could almost hardly look at it in the sunshine. It was just a gorgeous, a beautiful temple. And they said, teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. This would have been unthinkable to them. I mean, this massive structure. And not just the size of the structure, but the importance that the temple had to Judaism. It's hard to convey how crucial the temple was to them. It was the very core, it was the very center of their faith. In in essence, no temple, no Judaism. In fact, Judaism, as we see in the scriptures, ended with the destruction of the temple. You say, well, Jews, the Jews still meet, they still worship. That, to me, that would be like saying, it's like Christian churches who meet that deny the resurrection. Are they Christian? No, they still meet, they still worship, they still sing. But are they really, truly Christian? No. Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. Verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and, they're in there and they can see the temple from where they are. And this is important. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. were questioning him privately. So, everything that follows, who is Jesus speaking to? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. It's not a, it's not a public teaching. He's responding to these four disciples. And they were questioning him and they asked, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now, what has Jesus just told them? This temple will be leveled. And so, they ask him two questions. And it says right in our text, we don't have to go to any commentaries, we don't have to go anyplace else, it tells us right here the two questions. The two questions are what? Twofold. When... You might want to underline when. When will these things be? So he's talking, talking about timing. The second question is what will be the sign? So when and what? Whenever you look at prophecy, whenever you look at prophetic literature, you need to look for, first of all, you need to look for time text. Does, is there any text that gives me an indication of when this is going to be fulfilled or when this is going to happen? called time text. The whenness of it. Number two is the whatness is what will be the signs. Now in Mark's Gospel... Two questions are asked. When will these things be? What will be the sign? Luke, look at Luke's gospel. He, he has similar questions. He records similar questions. In Luke 21, they ask, when will these things be? What, will, what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Matthew's gospel, the second question is worded differently than Mark or Luke. Matthew's The two questions that Matthew records are when will these things be? The second one, what will be the sign of your coming? and at the end of the age. Now, why is, why is Matthew different? Why does Matthew record, record something different than Mark or Luke record? Well, I think the answer is in the, the, the emphasis or who their audience was. Remember, Matthew was writing to Jews. And, and he wanted to make explicit this issue of coming and end of the age. And that's going to be important. It's not end of the world. It's not the end of the cosmos. It's the end of the age, an aeon, an era. We, we, we think of age, we, we call it an era. An era has come. So, if you remember the Boston Celtics. And then they used to, they used to win the NBA all the time. And there was, there was a time when they were in it all the time. And then that era kind of came to an end. And they no longer were in the finals. It's an era. It's the epoch, aeon. It's not cosmos. Again, Matthew makes reference to the coming... And Matthew wrote, For a Jewish audience tonight, it's likely that the destruction of the temple as judgment against Jerusalem and the complete end of the Jewish age need to be made clear to them. The Jewish age, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was coming to an end. We see this in, in, in Hebrews. Talking about that it was Obsolete. And there was, a, there was coming a time when it would be done away with. Jesus said, the wineskins, you pour new wine into old wineskins. You, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. It was the end of the Jewish age. And, and in fact, this end began with the death of Jesus Christ. And, and again, making the, making the Old Testament, the Old Covenant obsolete. We are now under the New Covenant. Mark and Luke, however, wrote their Gospels to Gentiles. A devoid of uh, misunderstanding by the non-Jews, the, the, the disciples' questions were worded to reflect what the Olivet Discourse was really about. His coming, the end of the age, was all tied in with the destruction of the temple. They wouldn't have understood, the Gentiles wouldn't have understood the, the end of the age or his coming. They, all, all they would understand was it entails the destruction of the temple in context he's talking about the destruction of the temple so if you look at look at the context of his confrontation in the temple courts if you, if, you, if we were to read Matthew 23 actually from Matthew 21 on see the whole context is judgment against Jerusalem judgment against the ta- the, the, the temple the destruction of the temple is clearly what he's talking about, not the second coming of Christ here. And we're going to look at that. So let's look at the answer to these two questions, the whenness. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 13. Look with me at verse 28. Call this kind of, we're going to start with the back door, the back door of Mark 13, because this is when he answers the when question. Remember, they said, when will these things take place? Mark 13, beginning verse 28. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. I want to circle near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near. Circle near. And then he adds right at the door. This is a time text. When will these things happen? Jesus say, "They're near. The, the, the fulfillment of these things are near." Now, what does "near" mean? Uh, near, near could be. I, I suppose you could say it's near a, a year, five, ten. Could would you would you classify two thousand plus years as near? Is that the term you'd use as near? Uh, look with me at James chapter 5, because James uses almost the exact same language. James chapter 5, we we see, in fact, we see near in in the book of Revelation as well. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren. In the book of James, these were believers who were being defrauded uh, by uh, unscrupulous landowners. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. We automatically, whenever we see the word coming in the Bible, we automatically read into it the second coming. But we know that the Bible talks about other comings. We read through the Old Testament. <laughs> How many times it got come places? But he's telling them to be patient until the coming. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The same uh, phrase used in Mark 13. It's near, it was at hand. It's not talking about the second coming. You can't talk about the second coming in terms of near. Somebody people say, well, it's relatively near. We're going to talk about the use of language and how we interpret the language from the Bible sometimes we, 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 in order to fit a scheme, we, 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 we stretch words, we, we, they become so malleable that, they, that they, they don't mean anything anymore. But that's not the only thing. In Mark 13, the most important one is verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now some people say, say this, well they say, well... Um, well, well, first of all, let's look at the phrase this generation. By the way, I looked it up. W- what's the best commentary on the Bible? You guys should know this. The Bible itself. We don't run to commentary. Now, there's a place where you've known me, yes, I've, I look at commentaries. The best commentary in the Bible is the Bible. If you want to learn what this generation means, where do you go? The Bible. Thank you. See, it was a trick question. They, they, they thought I was thinking something. So I looked up the phrase, this generation. In the Gospels, it's found 15 times. Including this text and, 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 and parallel text. 15 times. Without exception, it always describes events within the lifetime of the then present audience. It never refers to a distant audience. In fact, if you read it in the in the in con- each individual context these 15 times, it would be nonsensical. But some want us to believe that it, in just this case, it refers to a distant generation. Fifteen times in the Gospels, without exception, it always describes events within the lifetime of the then-present audience. This generation. In fact, when we read that, the, the, word, it was the word generation. So, so if you're reading New American Standard, they have a footnote. And what's the footnote? Race. <coughs> and, and, and the only thing I can think of is this theologically um, generated. The word for generation is genea. The word for race is genos. This isn't the word for race. Why would you even footnote it? In fact, if you take if you look up genea and all the places it's found, not once does it ever refer to, or, or, or in context refer to race. There's a separate word for race. It's genos, not genea. What about the demonstrative pronoun, this? Uh, What is this? (laughs) What is this? This is what we call a near-demonstrative. What's the opposite of this? That. That That is a far-demonstrative. What I say, I'm... um, Danny, would you bring me this chair? No, I would say that chair, because it's, it's distant from me. Would I say I'm holding that Bible? I'm holding this Bible. I mean, grammar means things. This and that means things. Those and these, it means things. If he was referring to a future generation, what would he have said? A distant generation, that generation. In fact, I, I you know, if if, if I'm wrong, you can sh- I can't think of any use of this that would be referring to something in, in the distant future the far future. The, the 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 near demonstrative is for that is up close. This generation, the then present generation that Jesus was speaking about. This generation will not pass away until all these things are done. And what are all these things? Verses 5 through 29. So right off the bat, this is what I would call, it's a limiting text. its a it, is, it limits our interpretation. It's much like when we looked at 2 Thessalonians, talking about the man of lawlessness. Paul says, and you know what is restraining him now? well that limits who the man of lawlessness can be if the man of lawlessness clearly he was being restrained then regardless of who the restrainer is or isn't he was being restrained when Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians because he says you know that he is being restrained now or even if you want to put it first he's now being restrained he was alive at the time that Paul wrote so that limits who he can be could be the Pope this is a limiting text. This generation, the then generation, the then present generation that Jesus was speaking to will not pass away until all these things occur. You can't make this mean that. It's the obvious and clear meaning of this generation refers to those who were then present. To, the, to try to make it anything else would try, is, is, to, is to render words and language so malleable. Do you know what malleable means? Yeah, it's so flexible and fluid that they lose their meaning. This text is definitive. It is a boundary text. It rules out what 5 through 29 can't mean. You just can't get around when he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things are done. Exegetically, you just can't do it. That's the when. What about the what? Look with me now at verse 5, beginning in verse 5. So we know that all of the, the all, from, from verse 5 through 29, all had, or will have, it, now it's, it's future to them, will have a fulfillment prior to that generation passing away. If you roughly take a generation as 40 years, within 40 years. And it's interesting, how old, approximately how old was Jesus when he made this prophecy? 30. When was the temple destroyed? 70. 40 years. The what? Well, it's just some general observations. Let, let's, let's read some of these, and then we will, um, well, just some general observations. First, I want you to notice there, there, the, the specific signs are very detailed. For instance, um, verse 16 Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Now, um, this is very specific. This is obviously in the context of an agrarian society. He's out in the field working. Uh, Things are going to happen so rapidly. Don't even take time to go get your cloak. Um, Look, verse 17. Woe to those who are with child. Pregnant. Well, yeah. (laughs) Woe to those who are with child. And those who nursed babes in those days. Why? Because fleeing Jerusalem is going to be an arduous journey. Verse 18, pray that it may happen in the winter. Why would that be, why would that be important? Why? Again, if they have to flee, you don't want it to be cold. Very specific signs. Very localized details. Look again at verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should be, let the reader stand. Let those who are in the entire world, those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. What if you live in Roswell, New Mexico? <laughs> Anybody ever been, well, you have Cloud Crock, which, which is kind of close. What if you live in a place where there's no mountains? How do you apply that? Very localized details. Uh, very limited cultural indicators. Again, verse 14, I go back to that. He said, um, uh, verse 15, let him who is on the housetop not go down or enter in to get anything out of his house. Uh, I don't know, does anybody spend a lot of time on your roof? Well, they did. It was a very common social place for them to meet. Oftentimes they'd have external stairs and they would spend time on their roofs. That's where they would... That's what they would have, social gatherings. Uh, verse 9. Be on your guard for they de- deliver you over to courts. You'll be flogged in the synagogues. I don't know, do we still flog? <sighs> you know what? might not be a bad idea. Rather than send them to prison, just cane them. And then let them go. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings. I don't know, are there any kings? I guess if you get... In, in, where, who has kings? Give anyway? it a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so, so we see very specific signs, very localized details, very limited cultural indicators, roof of the house, council, synagogues, kings. Those are just some general observations. Let's walk through these a little bit. Verses 5 through 6. Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Uh, It's interesting that Acts lists a number of these alone. And for the sake of time, we're not going to look at all these texts. But, But Acts, just the book of Acts alone, records these things, this very thing happening. And then we have Josephus also historian that indicates these things. Verses 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Circle the end. We're going to come back to that. That is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. It's interesting. If you read um, in Josephus... Uh, as well but uh, Tacitus Tacitus a Roman historian was by no means uh, pro-Jewish very pro-Roman obviously Uh, Nero was the emperor you couldn't afford to be anything but pro-Roman and and he wrote covering this time period of 14 uh, AD to 68 AD he describes this time period he says with phrases like disturbances in Germany commotions in Atria uh, wars in Armenia, wars are being fought from one end of the empire to the other. And Josephus writes that, the, that Rome was experiencing so many minor civil wars, and so many civil wars that were so common in the empire that there was no need to write about them in any great detail. It'd be like, at some point, do you really need to report there's another murder in Chicago? It became so commonplace, they hardly even reported it anymore. What about famines? A, an important part of the book of Acts was what? The famine relief. And Paul taking the famine relief to Jerusalem. What about earthquakes? Well, we know there was a massive earthquake in the Lycus Valley. Laodicea, Colossae, that whole area that, that just leveled these cities. And Jesus says, "These are just the beginning." Verse nine, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them. One word, Paul. Again, <laughs> yeah, read the book of Acts. It's Paul, Paul spent the vast majority of ministry getting beat up and thrown in prison. as the other apostles did as well. Verse 10. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Well, surely this is in our future, right? Because the gospel has not been preached to all the nations. Um, Well, let's look at Romans chapter... Turn to Romans chapter 16. Again, uh, verse 30 indicates that all these things did happen within the then present generation. But again, this just gives you some ideas uh, of fulfillments within that generation. Romans 16, the end of the book, beginning of verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, According to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. It's perfect tense. Past event with continuing results. Has been made, the gospel, Paul said the gospel has already been made to all the nations. In fact, it went, writing the, to the church in Colossae, he states it a little differently. He said, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, the gospel which was proclaimed, was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Verses eleven and twelve. And when they arrest you and deliver you, who's the you? Bosses. Immediately. Because who is he speaking to? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you for that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother to death, and a father his child, and children rise up against parents, and they have been put to death. Again, Tacitus, uh, speaking of the Neroan persecution. If you ever want to read what in, the, the, the depths of evil, read about Nero. Certainly not the first several years of his reign, but the last several of his reign. Speaking of Tacitus, speaking of Nero's persecution, quote: "Several were seized who confessed, and by their discovery, a great multitude of others were found and barbarously executed." This went on all the time. They were snitches. Jordy, snitches get stitches. Verse 13, And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. What's the end? We saw this in verse 9. He says, what does he say in verse 9? Or, I'm sorry, verse 7. But that is not yet the end. And then in verse 13, he says, But one who endures to the end shall be saved. What's the end? The end of history? No, the end of what? The end of this conflagration, this coming conflagration of the destruction, can be person. At the end will be saved. The end is not two thousand years and even thousands of years in our future. He's talking about then. The end. <coughs> context. Context. Verse fourteen. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, again, then Mark adds this editorial comment: Let the reader understand then that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And again, we have all these. You know, we, we talk about abomination. We go to the book of Daniel and we we, we parse all these things and we're looking everywhere. Else. But it's interesting if you just turn to the book of Luke and look at Luke's account. Turn to Luke chapter twenty-one. Luke twenty-one. Verse twenty. Here's what, here's what Luke records. Jesus said, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter that city. Luke clearly identifies Whatever it meant in Daniel, we know that here, he, 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 Jesus clearly is saying, whatever else it is, the abomination of installation is when you see armies beginning to surround Jerusalem. Get out of town, he says. And we're going to talk about this. In fact, Josephus tells us that's exactly what the Christians did. They fled Jerusalem. They fled to Pella, which was in the mountains. And as far as we know, not one, one, one Christian was killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple. Verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation. By the way, this is tribulation this is this is a, just a, an English gloss. This is a translation. It means distress, or or suffering. Um, During this time of tribulation, distress or suffering such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never shall be. Oh, clearly, that's talking about the second coming. Well, one of the things that that, that is difficult for for people, maybe sometimes when they interpret the New Testament, they don't really understand the Old Testament. And unlike Andy Stanley, we don't want to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. So turning to Joel chapter 2, this is, in other words, this was a common prophetic idiom for talking about things are going to be really bad. Joel chapter 2. Let me give you one example. Joel chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Day of judgment is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. This, this, this was a way this was a prophetic way of saying it, it, it is going to be it is going to be unbelievably destructive they are unbelievably powerful verse 20 and unless the Lord had shortened those days no life would have been saved but for the sake of the elect whom he chose he shortened the days here's what's fascinating Is he talking about literally shortening the days? No, Jesus did that, or God did that once in, was it Judges, I think, when he he made the sun go back 10... Did he really shorten... Were these not 24-hour days? What does he mean he shortened the days? Well, a couple of opinions, a couple of options. One is that, similar to what he did in Judges, he literally shortened the days. Others believe, though, that what, he, that what he's referring to here, when, if you read the, about the history of the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, the general Pidus, when he, by the way, when they went into Israel from north to south, they had a scorched earth policy. And I think to this day, my theory is to this day, the reason why Israel is not the land flowing with milk and honey is because of, because of what the Romans did to that land. It never recovered. Maybe that was part of the judgment too. They had a scorched earth policy. They destroyed every village, every town, every tree. Uh, it, it was it was unbelievable. Not just for Jerusalem the temple, but read the history of what the Romans did. It was it's it's awe inspiring. And when Titus began to When they began to approach Jerusalem, for some inexplicable reason, he paused and he withdrew the troops. And there's a lot of different theories about why this happened. One of the theories, or not one of the theories, but we know that he got word that at this point that Nero had been assassinated by the Senate. But this brief pause enabled the Christians to flee as they began to see these abomination of desolation. The armies began to compass. It gave them time to flee. It was inexplicable why Titus did this. Read Josephus. It could be that, or it could be that God just providentially restrained them from doing any more damage. I don't, I don't believe that because literally, and I, it's just amazing to think about this massive structure, this marble, and literally, they say, was leveled to the ground. You, wouldn't even, you couldn't even tell a temple was there. How do you do that? I know you can we have a, we have bombs that could do that now. How could you do that back then? How do you burn a brick? And I mean how you... that stone explodes when it gets to a certain temperature so they build fires in the Oh, is that okay. Still pretty amazing to think about. They brought this thing down. Verses twenty one and twenty two. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, here he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise, and will show signs and wonders in order, if possible, to leave the elect astray. I mean all we have to do is go to Second Peter chapter two, right? First John four. I mean, the New Testament is, is, is replete with talking about the false prophets and the false Christs. And then he summarizes in verse twenty three. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Then verse 24, but in those days after that, after that tribulation, so he's saying this is after the distress and suffering that I've just described in verses 19 and following. After that, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, it's interesting that he says after that tribulation, Matthew even says immediately after that tribulation, there's still going to be tribulation. <laughs> but now he uses Old Testament prophetic language to description of the fall of nations and kingdoms. He quotes Isaiah 13.10. And he uses this, what we call cosmic catastrophe, stars and suns and moons. Uh, again, this was a prophetic way of describing the fall of nations and political powers. Remember the remember the dream that Joseph had. What did he say? Stars. And I saw twelve stars. And, uh, in fact, um, if look look at let, let's do look at let's look at Psalm eighteen. This will give you an idea of the kind of language, prophetic language that was used to describe God's judgment, God's intervention. Psalm 18. Now remember, in these psalms, the the, the description under the title is a part of the Hebrew text. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him, David, from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So if you read 2 Samuel, we read about the times when Saul... God continually uh, rescued Saul, uh, David from Saul's attempts. Look at, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of salvation. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I'm saved from enemies. The cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried to the God for, my God for help. He heard my voice and out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. And the earth shook and quaked. Did the earth literally shake and quake? No. Not in 2 Samuel. The foundation of the mountains were trembling. They were shaken because he was angry. Did that literally happen? No. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heaven's He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under His feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness His hiding place, His canopy around Him, darkness of waters, thick clouds. No, this this is a prophetic description of the intensity of God's judgment. (coughs) If you're to read Isaiah 13 that this is quoted from, he's talking about the, the stars falling from the skies and the moon being darkened and the sun being blackened out. And if you read Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 32, those of us on Wednesday nights, we see, this, is, this is common prophetic language. Heavenly disintegration was always a symbol of earthly or political disintegration. We see that. Cosmic catastrophe. This kind of language depicts the violent, upheaval and end of nations, powers, and kingdoms. Verse 26. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Coming does not mean, always mean the second coming. In fact, clouds were a, a common mode of uh, description of God's transportation. Psalm 104:3. They were symbols. Of, the clouds were symbols of God's presence, particularly in judgment. Nahum 1:3, Ezekiel 33, Joel 2:2. 2, 2. In fact, we don't even have to go there. We can go to Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Jesus testimony before the high priest. Verse 61. The, again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, "Are you the Christ?" the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus said, I am. Corey, there's an I am. I am. What did Jesus just say to him? All Jesus said was, I am. What did Jesus say to him? I'm Yahweh. And you, who's the you? In this context, who's the you? You said it. It's the chief priest. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming to the clouds of heaven. He will see it. Again, uh, things like clouds um, were were part of the description and symbols of God's presence and particularly when He would come in judgment. Verse 27. And then He will send forth the angels and will gather together His elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Is it, was a, were his elect in heaven? These are, these are, spectrum texts. North, south, east, and west. Uh, what about angels? Are these? Do you think these are literal? What we call spirit angels, with the wings and the. Now this, this is this is. Uh, the the word for angel simply means messenger. What do we see in Revelation to Paul's letters to the seven churches in Revelation? He says he writes to the what? To the angel. Most of our translations say angel. To the angel of the church. Could be messenger. In fact, I would argue that it is. These are human messengers. They were human messengers in Revelation 2 through 3. In fact, look at what they're doing. They... Tell me where spirit angels were ever involved in gathering together his elect. In fact, what does it mean to gather together his elect? In Matthew 23, verse 37, when Jesus says to them, listen to these, these are 24, 37. 23, 23 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, now your house, the temple, has left you desolate. For I tell you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. What does it mean to gather his elect? First Thessalonians, just write this down. First Thessalonians 2, 15-16. Part of the judgment It says, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. See, we don't really need to do this because of verse 30, but again, we see that this very easily, these, these, were, these were fulfillments that were then present. He concludes in verses 31 and following, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will not pass away, but at that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Three different times he says, verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. This is like his conclusion. Verse 35, therefore, be on the alert. One more time, verse 37, be on the alert. And I think this is clearly his final words because of verses 14 through 27 when he said, you won't even have time to go get your clothes, leave, leave town fast now. And that's why they had to be on the alert. They had to be ready to move at a moment's notice. Why all of this? Guys, a couple things. I know it's late. Thank you for your patience. Number one, the necessity for the judgment of Israel. Again, Jesus didn't get prophesied that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. It had to go. The old covenant age could no longer contain new covenant wine. But not only that, their repeated idolatry, all you need to do, again, for the sake of time, read Jeremiah 7. Which, was a, which is what God said to them before he destroyed the temple that time. Their idolatry and their blasphemy and their dependence on the temple. They said, well, we have the temple. We can live however we want. We have the temple. And God says, you're, you're, you're resting in the temple? You live like this and you think the temple is going to save you? Read Jeremiah 7. In fact, it's Jeremiah 7 that Jesus quotes when he cleanses the temple. He says, you've made the house of prayer a den of robbers. That's from Jeremiah 7. Alluding to the first time he came to destroy the temple. But most importantly, it's because they killed the Savior. Matthew twenty seven. And this is when I've been accused of being anti Semitic. But I'm just gonna read I'm just gonna read the Bible. Matthew 27, twenty seven, twenty. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes. Who were the multitudes? Remember the multitudes a couple days before, what were they doing? Hosanna! Hosanna! He persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, "Let him be crucified!" And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, "I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves." And all the people answered, said, "His blood be on our, on us, and our children." Then he released Barabbas for them. But after that, he scourged him. You read the end of Matthew twenty-three. Matthew chapter 23. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. If this is future, then Israel still has a a judgment in their future. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And, And upon that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation, this generation that did that. Finally, again, again, talking about the new covenant John chapter 4 this this great interchange that Jesus has with the woman at the well you remember that story John chapter 4 verse 20 she said to Jesus our fathers worshipped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to offer the temple but Jesus said to her woman believe me an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the father don't need the temple anymore Don't need Jerusalem anymore. We won't need that. Why? You worship that which you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. We don't need the temple anymore. See, the fall of Jerusalem was horrific. If you read Josephus in the... It it, it was unimaginably horrific. The siege of Jerusalem. and People were eating their children. Um, It was horrific. But it was judgment. It was necessary and just. And it ushered in, literally ushered in the new covenant in which every single one of us sitting here enjoying the fruit of had the temple not been destroyed, had, had Jerusalem not been destroyed, had the old Jewish age, the old covenant age, not come to an end, then we'd have to become Jews before we become believers. In fact, this is what they wrestled with in the early church. The, the Judaizers say, you gotta, you got to be Jews first. Now, Paul says, we form one new man out of the two. Christian. both <laughs> well, Jew and Gentile had to come to know Christ. It's no longer about the temple. It's no longer about Jerusalem. It's about Christ, who is the temple, and we are the temple. It had to go. And it opened the door for you and I to come to know Christ. Let's pray. Father, a lot of details. and uh, Help us not to get lost in the details, but to marvel in the way that you well, to marvel at your redemptive plan. It was progressive. It was was perfect. It was beautiful. And we know that there is coming a day when you will come again. And we read in other texts that there is going to be judgment, future judgment. Not this one, but in other texts we clearly see, Father, that you will come in judgment. But it's interesting, Father, those texts talk about glorious resurrection. That's the final word. The final word is that you have promised us that those who have trusted in you will be resurrected to new life. That is our hope. That's what we cling to. Father, I pray that in the midst of the debate, in the midst of the, all of the arguments, that we not lose the one central feature that regardless of when it is, As you have told us, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We look long for the day when we will dwell with you forever. That day is certain. When that comes, we don't know. But Father, I pray that in the meantime, we would be active, we would be diligent, and um, sharing your gospel, standing for truth, holding forth the word, proclaiming the cross. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?